Welcome to the podcast novel, Outcast. Outcast is a podcast-only novel written and read by Chris Vitzman. Show website and more information available at outcastnovel.podshow.com. This novel contains mature situations, language, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And here we go. Hey, how's it going? This is Chris, and I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of Outcast, my first attempt at a podcast novel. Now, before I get started, I'd just like to say thank you. Thank you for taking the time to download this first episode and have a listen to it. I hope you like it enough to keep listening, and that you'll be there to see this ride all the way to the end. Now, I've got a couple of promos at the end of the episode, kind of my way of paying homage to the two podcast novelists who ultimately led me to this point. The first promo will be for that podcast blockbuster known as The Seventh Son, written by J.C. Hutchins. And the second promo will be for Scott Sigler's biological techno-horror novel called Infection. These two were the first podcast novels I ever listened to, and thanks to their Share the Pain contest, they planted that little seed in the back of my head, the little voice that told me that someday I'd be doing what I'm doing right now. And now here we are. So I hope you like what I've got to offer, and I'll have some feedback information for you after the episode. But for now, Outcast. Chapter 1 My name is Dallin. I had another name once, one that was my birthright as firstborn son to my father. It was a name he gave to me, and when the time came, I would give it to my firstborn son. It was my destiny to be part of a line that dated back to the time of the warlords, if you believe in that sort of thing. Of course, were it not for things turning out the way they had, my destiny would have been all nice and laid out for me. However, that's not the case, or else you wouldn't be hearing this now, would you? No. That name of honor is forever lost to me now, and the name I've been allowed to keep is little more than a death sentence if spoken in the right company. My name is Dallin, and this is my story. For twelve long, happy years, I was Dallin Chang Calamar, second heir to the eldership of the clan of the Tiger's Paw, beneath my father, Lucas, and beneath his father, Wan Chang. From the age of three, I trained in the fighting art of Katu, one of the few fighting styles befitting a tiger like myself. When my father ascends to the rank of elder, it was to fall on me to become the trainer of future generations of my clan. My siblings and their children, as well as my own, would learn our way to fight through me. And, when the time came, I would ascend and become clan elder, and would undertake the blessed curse that is family leadership. Now, those hopes and dreams are gone. It all began a mere two months before my 13th birthday. At the time, the Tiger's Paw Clan was on the verge of making clan history. You see, my father had become a finalist in the annual Kumal Tournament of Martial Arts. 
Each year, clans all over the country of Chantel would gather in Kerala City's clan lands to participate. And to the winner went the title of Kaal Shara, or Clan Defender, and until the next Kumal would enjoy several privileges there too. For some, the privilege was money, for others women, and even for others men. The Kaal Shara's very whim was equivalent to a command from the High Elder himself. This year, though, the stakes had been raised considerably. Lars Rondoki, elder and master trainer of the Clan of the Midnight Fang, had wagered his clan's possession of the Kalpak in this year's tournament. Now, while the Grand Council applauded such a noble gesture, those not immediately awestruck by the Rondoki clan knew the real reason behind the wager. Intimidation. See, Lars had won the Kumal for ten consecutive years, and had used that influence to maintain several ancient practices in the name of building a strong family. Now, while some new blood was introduced into the fold on occasion, it didn't take a genius to figure out the amount of rampant incest going on behind the state's walls. They were very selective in their quest for new blood as well. Only panthers with an all-black fur pattern were permitted, and there had to be no defects or deviations in their bloodlines. Many non-clan, all-black panthers typically bleached part of their fur in an effort to dissuade the Rondokis from outright kidnappings. But more often than not, the ruse was found out and taken as fresh genetic material for their line. It's said that the moment a Rondoki pantheress comes into heat that she has three choices. Mate and bear a child, hide and risk being beaten, or take their own life. Typically, they merely accept their duties and snag the first male they can find. And the mating is constant, too. They carry on throughout their entire cycle in hopes of conceiving, lest they be victims of an even more vicious beating afterwards. And as a result of this behavior, the Midnight Fang Clan has a small, standing army composed entirely of family members. In their defense, their rather licentious behavior is an extension of an ancient clan way of life. During the time of the warlords, the clans were compelled to do anything to amass a strong army for their masters. And if that meant a father would bet his wives, daughters, and granddaughters all in one night, then so be it. I digress. The Kalpak, or clan protector, eh, it's not my fault ancient Bengalan translates so banally into Terran English. It's an ancient statuette of the war god Ratal. Legend speaks that this icon can grant invulnerability to whichever clan possesses it. And for some, that legend stood to reason, given Lars' continued victory in the Kumal every year. There was an additional reason to celebrate this night. For my mother, Kira, was pregnant with her sixth child. And just so you know, it was by my father. The Kalamar clan hasn't practiced army building since the time of the ascensions. So while my father moved into the final round of the tournament... Mother was enduring a rather painful labor at the hospital. Now, while the clans normally employed the services of a midwife, everyone agreed that this time she would be better off under the care of a doctor. So as a result, my grandmother and two sisters kept watch at the hospital, while my grandfather, my two brothers, and I all remained behind to cheer father on. The final round to decide next year's Kalshera was to take place between my father and Lars Rondoki both of whom had all but crushed their opponents on their way to this point. Now, unlike the training in a war hall, the Kamal was a first circle combat, 
full contact. Over the years, many of its participants were sent home broken, bloody, and in some cases dead. While killing a combatant did not merit a disqualification from the tournament, it most certainly did nothing for one's honor. Any deaths in the past century had been the result of an accident, and usually resulted in a rather large compensation made to the victim's clan on the part of the offender. The fight was long and downright bloody between my father and Lars. The Rondoki fighting art of Saras involved the use of nearly every edged weapon in known history. From a kitchen knife to the heaviest of the ancient rock she blades, the Midnight Fang soldiers knew how to use it and use it well. For this contest, Lars had armed himself with what appeared to be a Talafna blade. It was a dagger-like weapon with an edge on only one side. In any case, it seemed to prove rather effective, given the number of bleeding cuts my father was suffering. As I watched, I was amazed at how resilient my father was. In spite of the blood he'd lost, he barely faltered and gave as good as he got. Halfway through the fight, Lars' left eye was already swollen shut, and he was spitting on bloody globs of phlegm every few moments, a sign that his muzzle had been severely injured. And if nothing else, I would say that Lars was beginning to reel from father's attacks. He seemed to stagger around like a drunkard after a time, and his attacks were growing slower and more sloppy. At this point, I was sure even my youngest brother could have finished him off. But there was no need for that. My father had finally had enough. With a last surge of fury, he all but pummeled Lars into the ground. The image of my father, a bare-chested tiger, both arms raised in roaring triumph of the fallen panther, would forever be burned into my mind as the single proudest moment of my life. The judges all agreed that it had been a clean battle and that my father had indeed beaten Lars Rondoki fairly. At long last, the reign of the Midnight Fang as Kal Shara was at an end. It's funny how things suddenly descend from their highest highs to the lowest lows. I could see my father begin to waver, and he eventually collapsed on the mat due to loss of blood. We all rushed to his side to make sure he was alright. The on-site medical teams all indicated that he would have to be transported to the hospital for some much-needed work. My pride instantly turned to guilt as I thought of all my father had done for his clan, only to nearly die from it. As he was being loaded onto a gurney, he turned to me, and with that strong but weakened voice, he said, My son, I leave it to you to finish the rite. Make me proud. I... I will, father. He smiled, and I watched him being loaded into the aerial ambulance for transport to the hospital. I bade my grandfather and brothers to accompany him. I would summon Narelle, our estate driver, to take me to the hospital after the rite had been performed. That one selfless moment turned out to be the worst mistake of my life. An hour later, I was outside speaking with Narelle via portcom unit. I would wait for him, and together we would head for Kerala City with all due haste so that I could be there when Mother finally gave birth. He indicated to me that he would be there shortly. I didn't think anything of it as I switched off the portcom unit, and I gazed up at the night sky. It has never ceased to amaze me how, even though science and physical evidence have revealed all but the deepest mysteries of the stars, that they still enthralled people with wonder. A night sky filled with millions of violent primordial nuclear reactors was still the perfect setting for things like an evening stroll, 
the embrace of a lover, or mere self-reflection. They seemed to shine a bit brighter this night. Perhaps the patrons were pleased at how the contest had ended. Perhaps, like many of us, they had been cheering for Father, and were celebrating as much as we planned to. I suddenly heard some rustling from some nearby bushes and tensed. My whiskers stretched outward, tasting the electricity in the air, and trying to detect what was going on. I could feel my young muscles tense and my fists begin to clench and unclench. My claws also flexed, but they were so neatly trimmed that they would be useless in a fight. <laughs> Strike one against societal hygiene. Out of the bushes emerged four beings, each wearing swords on their hips and black masks over their muzzles. In the darkness I could make out no discernible marks to identify who they were, but the weapons they carried told me volumes about their intentions. Give us the statue, boy, snarled one of them. He stretched his hand out as if by merely uttering this command I would obey. Hand it over and you may yet live to see another day. Kalpak is the property of the victor, I said, doing my best to mask my growing fear. It is not for thieves such as you. They weren't phased by my threats, no surprise. I mean, why would they be? Instead of stopping, the four of them drew their swords and charged me. I turned from them and ran as fast as my legs would carry me. I crashed into the brush and after a few moments began to turn towards the main road. With any luck I'd reach it and would either intercept Norell on his way here or possibly flag down someone else for help. As I ran I could hear them behind me, shouting orders to each other. I felt thankful that in such low light even a tiger like myself could easily melt into the undergrowth and disappear from sight. When I think about it now, had my head not been so filled with images of those swords, I would have found a place and kept covered. Perhaps then they would have given up on their chase and let me be. <laughs> ah, the clarity of hindsight. Instead, I ran through the brush for what felt like an eternity, trying to avoid capture by even one of my four pursuers. My clothes were all but shredded at this point, my body was covered in scratches. Not enough to break the skin, mind you, but enough to be felt even through my fur. I'd be feeling them for a few days after if I survived this ordeal. I could feel my strength beginning to wane far too quickly as I ran. I was only a cub, unused to this kind of exertion. I was fast becoming too winded to continue. My arms and legs burned, but I couldn't stop. There was no way in all seven hells that I was going to let those four apocalypse take from me that which I'd been sworn to protect. They'd have to take it from my cold, dead fingers. Finally, I broke through the bushes and began a flat-out run across an open field. I could see the main road just ahead of me. Just a handful of meters separated me from my salvation. Just the thought that I was so close seemed to re-energize my aching muscles, and I summoned up every ounce of strength I had left. I pumped my arms and let a low growl escape my muzzle as I scrambled for that stretch of road just ahead. I never heard them crash through the brush mere moments later. I never bothered to look behind me. Nor did I ever chance to look down to see that depression before me. Suddenly my left leg sunk down too far, and the momentum of my body changed too quickly for my mind to process. I felt my ankle twist, and with a yowl of pain I crashed hard to the ground. All at once the adrenaline faded from my young body, and the pain came on in wave after wave of agony. My ankle throbbed violently, and my legs and arms burned from their recent workout. My mind was still racing, still trying to urge me onward. But with a bum ankle and muscles already pushed beyond any sane limit, I knew there was no escape. I turned and faced my attackers, 
dropping into the fighting stance my father had taught me. My heart was still pounding and my mind was screaming for me to run. But I knew, whether I fought or ran, I wasn't going home this night, or any night for that matter. Better to show the patrons that I'd sooner die fighting than be cut down running from four cowards who fought behind masks. The four of them caught up with me in mere moments and fell upon me like a plague. I swung and kicked for all I was worth, even felt a few punches connect, weak as they were. I did manage to land one solid kick to an attacker's groin, but when I felt the bite of his comrade's sword in my leg, any measure of satisfaction I'd taken from that kick disappeared. The blade bit deep. I felt it scrape against bone, and it turned my thigh muscle into nothing more than a useless blob of tissue. Gouts of blood spurted from the open wound, and an entire universe of pain exploded in my head. I screamed, I think. Maybe I just roared defiantly and kept swinging, trying in vain to beat back my attackers. I threw a punch at one of them, only to have another slice into my arm, severing my tricep muscle from the tendons that held it to the bone. Again, I can't remember if I screamed, though I do remember falling moments later when both my calf muscles were severed. My ears were ringing so much that I couldn't tell if they were laughing as they rolled me onto my back. Their swords flashed again and again, cutting through flesh and muscle, but never severing the bone. By the time they were done with me, my muscles hung off my limbs like mere slabs of twirl meat. I heard no final words or threats as they took the satchel containing the kalpak from me and melted back into the night. I remember staring up at the sky, straining to keep my eyes open in the wake of the growing darkness around me. I felt deathly cold, but there was nothing I could do about it. It didn't matter anyway. I was going to die out here, alone. I didn't even have the strength to whisper a plea for forgiveness from my father or to the patrons. All I could do was listen to my own shallow breathing and my ever-fading heartbeat until finally, that one excruciating moment hit when my mind screamed its last. My vision filled with a white light so intense I thought my eyes would be burned away. My body tensed and I uttered a final, pathetic little whimper. Then, all was darkness. You've been listening to Outcast, a podcast novel written and read by Chris Vitston. Thank you for listening. For more information, visit the story's website at outcastnovel.podshow.com. To get in touch with me, feel free to send an email or a soundbite to outcastnovel at gmail.com. Theme music is the song Electric Blue by Droom, and is available at the Podsafe Music Network. Your childhood, from birth to age 14, never happened. Every memory from that time, every emotion, every dream, isn't yours. Your seemingly normal life has never been normal. You've been unwittingly playing a very important role in a very secret experiment. You are a clone, grown years ago in an underground facility. Your memories, a recording of someone else's childhood. And now, you've been ripped away from your so-called normal life. You and six other clones have been brought here, to your birthplace, 
by your creators. You've been assembled to stop the person behind the recent assassination of the U.S. president. Your target? The person you were cloned from. The original you. The alpha you. Welcome to Seventh Son. Seventh Son, Book One, Descent, is the new podcast thriller novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Follow John, Michael, Kilroy 2.0, and the other clones as they discover who they are and realize the president's murder was merely a prologue to their progenitor's plans. Join the descent. Find Seventh Son at jchutchins.net and at patiobooks.com. Six foot five, two hundred and sixty-five pounds of angry ex-linebacker. His daddy toughened him up with a strap. The law called it child abuse and assault. His daddy called it discipline. That discipline helped make Perry Dossie a violent wrecking ball of a linebacker, a football legend, and a pain-dealing machine. But when the football stopped, the violence didn't. Perry has spent his whole life trying to break the cycle of violence to become a better man than his father. He told himself to control his anger, his paranoia, and his powerful rage. But the voices are telling him something else. When the infection hits, Perry has only one week to live. The only question is... How many people is he taking with him? Infection is the horrifying new podcast novel by me, Scott Sigler, author of Ancestor and Earthcore. Sign up now at scottsigler.podshow.com or subscribe directly at feeds.feedburner.com slash scottsigler. The infection kills you slowly if the cure doesn't kill you first.